0: Welcome to Exaltation. This is Father David Masterson bringing you the beautiful, the good, and the true. Our scripture today is Genesis chapter 5 verses 1 to 4 and verse 24. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created him male and female and blessed them and named them man in the day that they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became father of a son in his own likeness according to his own image and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were eight hundred years, and he had other sons and daughters. Then verse 24, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Genesis chapter 5 marks the beginning of a whole new section in this wonderful book. Moses deliberately marks the change by using the phrase, This is the book of the generations of Adam. Rather than using his usual words, These are the generations. Now this word book that Moses uses means written account, and it's found only here in Genesis and then next in Exodus 17, 14. Remember that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, Moses used the phrase, These are the generations of the heaven and the earth. This is because the individual person is always subsumed in his seed, his ancestry. Put another way, The person is always the product of his progenitor. That is why the biblical story of an individual like Noah or Abraham opens up a whole new chapter of that person's after story. There is an Arabic saying, Whoever begets is not dead. One life is continued in the story of his seed after him. Now why is this important? because the modern Western way of looking at an individual is to see that person as sandwiched between birth and death, having value only in and of himself without reference to his family. This is the sin of self-absorption and selfishness. God's way of looking at man is that we are part of someone else, and our Father is very important as a godly head from whom flow untold blessings, or an ungodly head from whom flow untold curses to the generations after us. This list of descendants of Adam in this chapter serves a very important purpose. It shows how the godly line of worshipers of the true and living God goes through Seth to Noah, the last of the godly line before the destruction of the flood. There is a sharp contrast between these two lines of humanity, the line of Cain in chapter 4 and the line of Seth in chapter 5. The line of Cain is the ungodly who have wickedly departed from faith and trust in God. The line of Seth are the godly, the worshippers, those who put their faith in God and give him right adoration and praise. Moses is careful to trace the godly line from the beginning, from the day that God created man. This is the record of the holy seed of his chosen people who will eventually become the church of the New Testament. Verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 5 give us very important foundational truth. They tell us that God created man in his likeness, in his image. He made man into two complementary halves, male and female. He blessed them and called them man. Remember that in the biblical understanding, male and female are simply two halves of the same being, man. This is why the current emphasis in modern culture around gender confusion and transgenderism and trying to change from a girl to a boy and a boy to a girl is so diabolical because it rips apart the wholeness and wonder of what God so beautifully created from the beginning when he made man as male and female. In verse 3, we discover that the likeness of God is reproduced by Adam in his son Seth. In God's great wisdom and creativity, he made the DNA so that he does not have to physically intervene to create each new person from the dust of the ground as he made Adam. Each birth is still miraculous because God initiates and superintends that birth, but the DNA carries the life from the father and mother to the child. Adam passes both the original image of God within him from Genesis chapter 1 and his sinful nature unto his son Seth from the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Therefore, Seth was born a sinner, but he was born by God's grace into the line of the godly, the new humanity which receives the grace of God and is converted from sin to live in union with God. This is, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, the chosen nation, and in the New Testament becomes the Church of Christ, the new Israel. What strikes us in verses 4 and 5 and then continuing through the whole chapter is that in the ten generations that Moses lists here, The lifespan is so remarkably long. Verse 5 says that Adam lived 930 years and then he died. Seth lived 807 years. Canaan lived 910 years. Mahaliel lived 895 years and Methuselah lived 969 years. What accounts for these very long lifespans? It is suggested that the climate in the pre-flood era was much more suitable to sustaining life and that the diet of these people was also very healthy without GMOs, preservatives, and other harmful substances. It is also suggested that the great age lengths may be owed to the proper government of their passions within, leading to a relatively stress-free and quiet lifestyle. Whatever the secondary causes, God desired that the godly line of Seth live for long periods of time to preserve true religion and genuine piety upon the earth. Remember that the ungodly line of Cain was multiplying rapidly alongside the godly line of Seth. Truth was passed down by oral tradition, so God allowed these long lifespans of his godly generation in order to perpetuate the truthful tradition of true religion from family to family. Another way of looking at this whole chapter is to see the two lineages described here as the city of man and the city of God. The church father, St. Augustine in the 4th century, wrote a famous book called The City of God in which he goes deeply into this comparison. The city of man is earthly. It concerns itself with the things of time, the here and now. It has its own gods, small g, and its own priorities. It is terribly concerned about power, pleasure, wealth, and fame, and particularly in the current context, health how to be sure we don't catch some unseen virus that we are taught to fear. The city of God belongs to the saints of God, the holy ones, those who have been transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ to share in his life. Their priorities are truth, beauty, and goodness, obedience to God's commands, walking in the light and proclaiming the glory of the gospel to all who will hear. Besides providing a link between Adam and his times and Noah and his times, this chapter also has an important theological teaching. It is the recurring phrase, and he died, which appears eight times in this chapter. One commentator calls this the solemn toll of the patriarchal funeral bell. This is a poignant reminder that we all live in an abnormal world. Sin is a poison that has infected everything. Since man revolted against God, things are not the way that God intended them to be. If we ever doubt that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6 23, we only need to look at the long flow of death down through human history death, death, and more death. So and so lived, begot a son, and he died. Another so-and-so lived, begot a son, and he died. We must never forget that sin always produces death. It is part of the consequence and punishment of the fall. Look at verse 24. But then comes the great exception. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. This verse is one of the astonishing verses in all of the book of Genesis. It shines like a single brilliant star above the earthly record of this whole chapter. After a succession of and he died and he died and he died, we come to these marvelous words and Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Only one other man before the flood was said to have enjoyed this intimacy of relationship with God, and that is Noah in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. Alexander White was a godly Scottish pastor who lived 1836 to 1921. He says, Enoch did for us what very few books know anything about. He walked with God and so sets us on thinking what walking with God might mean. I say solemnly that walking with God is both the most difficult thing and the most easy thing in all the world. It is so difficult as to be found an impossibility by most men, while to one man here and there among many, it is as easy to him as breathing, as easy as eating when he is hungry. Few of us have ever entered into our own hearts where God walks with men. Your first step in the direction of God is not taken when you put on your Sunday clothes and walk into your pew. The first step towards God is when you put on humility in your proud heart, when you fill your angry heart with meekness and resignation and quietness and contrition and a broken heavenly Holy Heart. Let's continue our lesson. Enoch laid aside guile, hypocrisy, envy, and an evil-speaking heart, and as a newborn babe he desired the sincere milk of the Word that he may grow thereby. He began to live in the Spirit even before the Spirit was given to man. Let's look closely at this whole idea of walking with God. We are orthodox Christians when we believe that God is and that the Bible is true and that we need God in our lives. This is basic Christian knowledge, the ABCs of being a Christian. But how do we grow beyond the ABCs to become truly transformed Christians? holy men and women called into partnership with God. This happens when we believe down deep with the totality of our whole being, with our whole heart, that God is, that he is beside us, that he is within us, and that he is all around us. That belief changes everything. Enoch was such a holy man. He lived so close to God and in such intimacy with God that God could no longer afford to loan him to this world, so he took him to be with him in eternity. The effect of this mighty miracle gave proof to the unbelieving world around Enoch that the things he believed and taught were true. Being devoted to God and his word and his presence and his commandments in an ungodly and unrighteous world was pleasing to God. Therefore God took Enoch to be with him. He did not die an ordinary human death, but was translated up to heaven to be with the Lord. We need to sit quietly and reflect on the deep meaning of verse 24. What are the characteristics of a life that pleases God? The first prerequisite is to live by faith. Hebrews 11.5 says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. What is faith, dear friends? Hebrews 11.1 defines it. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We cannot walk with God until we are free from the slavery of time and sense. The Negro spiritual goes, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Do we really believe this? We must reverse the teaching of the world regarding time and sense. The here and now must recede in importance to the there and then. The world says that what I see and touch is real and what is spiritual is dim and shadowy and far off and not the really real. The world tells you that money and credit cards and houses and cars and technology is real. The world says, Big pharma and big tech and big government are real and that you need the support of these institutions to live. The world says, be popular, be noticed, have a great career. God says, ignore the world. Forget about the status of a worldly career. Do good work with your own hands, love your neighbor care for your own household and live a quiet life of godly devotion that is pleasing to the Lord. John Calvin, the 16th century pastor and reformer, goes so far as to say, those who yield themselves up to the imitation of this world must be regarded as living for the devil. Dear friends, everything starts with an earnest faith. The unseen is the real. The material is only the illusion. We need to live in the reality of God's kingdom and drop the illusion of this world and its deceptions. Now, is this easy? Of course not. It will tax every ounce of determination and discipline and strenuous effort to shake ourselves free of the deceptions of this world and live in the kingdom of God. We must constantly free ourselves from the lies of the media, from the lies of big government and big tech and big pharma, in order to live in the reality of God and His kingdom. Besides a vigorous exercise of faith every day, there must be a constant habit to occupy the mind with thoughts of God. This is the greatest challenge for the majority of Christian people. How often... Are we really conscious of God? How often during the day do we turn to Him? How often do we think about Him? A good question to ask is, when your mind is free, where does it turn? Does it turn to God, or does it turn to the things of this world? Do our thoughts turn to past resentments? Do our thoughts turn to grievances we have with other Christians? Do our thoughts turn to worries about the future, to caring for our possessions? Or do our thoughts turn freely and naturally to adore the Lord, to depend upon the Lord, and to ask for His help in all things? Not only must we live by faith and occupy our minds with God, but we must also walk in obedience to God's commands. Faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin. We can't claim that we have faith unless we are obeying God's commands. And we can't obey the commands without faith. There is no union and fellowship with God without obeying His commands. And what are His commands? Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11-13. to 13. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Now, listen to these same words in the Amplified Version. For the grace of God, His unmerited favor and blessing— has come forward, appeared, for the deliverance from sin and the eternal salvation for all mankind. It has trained us to reject and renounce all ungodliness, irreligion, and worldly passionate desires, to live discreet, temperate, self-controlled, upright, devout, spiritually whole lives in this present world, awaiting and looking for the fulfillment, the realization of our blessed hope, even the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus the Messiah. But, you say, this standard is too high. How can anyone reject and renounce all ungodliness, all irreligion, all worldly passionate desires, and live discreet, temperate, self-controlled, upright, devout, spiritually whole lives, always looking, waiting, and expecting the glorious second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? How can anyone really do that? Only by a firm and resolute intention. Webster defines intention as the stretching or bending of the mind towards an object, fixedness and earnestness of attention. William Law was a godly Puritan pastor from 1686 to 1761. He wrote a famous book in which he said, It is through want of a sincere intention of pleasing God in all our actions that we fall into such irregularities of life as by the ordinary means of grace we should have power to avoid. We do not have that perfection which our present state of grace makes us capable of because we do not intend To have it. It is very plain that our salvation depends upon the sincerity and perfection of our endeavors to obtain it. What is required of us is to give God our best efforts to be as perfect as we can be. We lack eminent piety not through ignorance nor through inability, but purely because we never thoroughly intend it. Now, dear listening friends, these are challenging and convicting words, aren't they? But what is the good news behind the challenge and conviction? That the unique and exceptional end of a life of communion with God that Enoch enjoyed may be experienced by each of us. We can have the same life that he had if we will follow his example. Psalm 49.15 says, But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he will take me. Then Psalm 73.24 says, With thy counsel thou wilt guide me, and afterward take me to glory. Notice that the words, take me, are the very same that were used of Enoch in Genesis 5.24. Though the externals of Enoch's end and my own end are different, yet the substance is the same. I, too, will never be seen by men, because God will take me into the glory of heaven by the loving grasp of his hand. You, too, listening friend, if you keep believing in God and walking in his commandments and seeking a life of virtue, you will be taken by God into heaven. The Bible uses the figure of crossing the Jordan River as a symbol of being taken up to heaven. Enoch was carried by God high above over the Jordan River until he got to the other side. We have to go down into the water and keep walking until we are submerged under the water in death, but we will also get to the same place where Enoch is we will enter into the company of all the saints that have gone before us. My grandfather, my grandmother, my dear father, and some of my close friends are all waiting there for me. As we read down through this list of the genealogy of Seth, the godly saints of old, we know nothing about these men. It is a long list about how they grew, they gave birth, and they died how they lived, what thoughts they had, their occupation, their families. We know nothing about this, but we do know they had the same sorrows and joys, the same tensions and heartaches, the same warp and woof of life that we have. Different times, same humanity. And we know that if they were godly men, they lived by the same power, by which all of us must live today. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8:28. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory both now and forevermore. Amen. You've been listening to the program Exaltation. I'm Father David Masterson with Gaudette Ministries. You may reach us on the web at gaudetteministries.org. That's G-A-U-D-E-T-E, ministries.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with this word of encouragement from the prophet Isaiah. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not faint.